0: So what I thought I would do first is just um, because you might think of me as an anthropologist of Japan. Anyone who's come here to hear about Japan, you can feel free to leave if you like. So I'm not going to say anything about Japan at all. But I will tell you a little bit of background because this, as it said, I think if you saw a blurb about today, is about is a, was a retirement project, and I'm going just to tell you why um, <coughs> I uh, I did this thing because I did my first degree in general science and in 1966, so now you know exactly how old, well you don't know how old I am but how long ago it was. Um, And I'd never heard of anthropology and I did physics and astronomy and maths and chemistry and and then at the end of that three years the only thing I really knew was that that I didn't want to do any more of that for the time being. (coughs) So I went travelling and in those days it was quite um, unusual to go travelling, it wasn't like everyone did gap years. So I went off and I travelled around and worked in other places for five years. And everyone was worried about it. my mum was worried, you know, my aunties were worried, my friends were worried. The only people who were impressed were, when I came here and applied to do anthropology five years later, they seemed to be very pleased. So I thought, well I'm obviously on the right track here. Then. <coughs> um, so that's what happened. And during that five years, I did some things which influenced what I'm going to talk about t- oh, sorry talk about today. Which is, I went to the Expo in 1967 in Montreal. It's the one that Umberto Eco wrote about, called Hyper, in his book called Hyper Reality. But the thing that really impressed me, and I can still see it, is the native, what was called the native pavilion. Because the Canadian government decided to give the indigenous people of Canada a pavilion. And it was really powerful. I walked in there, and it was all around you, and, and then you heard the story of how people... Um, uh, uh, lived before Europeans arrived, how they welcomed Europeans, and all sorts of stuff about the knowledge of the local environment. So those, those things were in the back recesses of my mind for all these years, even though I went off and, and worked in Japan. <coughs> um, and in between 1968 and '70, I lived in Mexico, where I discovered anthropology. And um, although I was working as a journalist, I felt I'm not really getting deeply enough into things, so then I applied and came back to Oxford. So that's, that's the background, and it, it is relevant to what I'm going to talk about today. <coughs> and I came here in 1971, and um, I gradually became an anthropologist, as you're probably all in the process of doing as well. And I did specialise on Japan, but um, in 1993 approximately, I b- decided to broaden my focus partly because I got this wonderful grant called the THB Simons Award in Commonwealth Studies, which enabled me to go and I also got a Levy Human Travel Award to live in um, Canada for six months and I'd like to thank Laura because she, oh, she, she introduced me to a wonderful family that put me up um, on uh, uh, a reserve six of the six nations in Brantford, Ontario. And then I also went around different culture centres in, and mostly the Woodlands Woodland Cultural Centre and um, discovered all sorts of things about indigenous people representing themselves which I wrote up in a book called Reclaiming Culture and that, that's, that's the background so while I was um, doing that research in Canada I'd noticed various things which um, led towards what I'm going to talk about today which is the science part now everyone knows this if they're in North America but the three sisters um, refers to a way of growing beans and corn and squash that's really all, they all help each other so this isn't a very good depiction of it because you can't see um, the corns down in there but the corn is supposed to be planted first, and then the beans grow up it, and then the squash grows and covers the ground, and nitrogen comes from the um, beans into the corn, and the, the squash keeps uh, uh, keeps out the weeds and so on. So that's, that's one thing that I learned pretty fast, but it happens all over North America, right down to Mexico. Another thing, and this is a little bit more difficult to um, immediately to see, the school in the reserve where I was staying um, was built by um, an art- uh, a First Nations architect called Brian Porter, and he told me all about the school. He said I've made it so that I can show respect to my ancestors who would love this, but also so children can learn about the environment. So all the different coloured bricks represent different coloured earth that, that, that's underneath the school. They put pipes down six feet under the ground because that's where it's always warm, even in the winter when the ground freezes over. So it helps to keep the water warm, and and it circulates around the building as part of the heating. Um, These steel girders, which don't look anything like you might have seen in in the time of his ancestors, he said, I put these there. My ancestors would have loved this because the water comes shooting down when it rains, and, and you can learn the properties of water because you see it coming down, you see it bouncing up, and it's for the children to play with and learn about the environment. Um, and then finally, the... Well, this might not be finally. There might be other things that I've forgotten, but the north-south glass roof um, does something inside, um, which is, enables you to tell the time of day and the time of year if you look at the way that the, the sunlight comes through. So, actually, it was a bit sad, really, because the librarian didn't know when I went in about <laughs> it. But that's what it was meant to be for, and people could learn. <clears throat> so that was the second thing. Um, and uh, not on the strength of that but when I retired actually just before I retired I applied for a grant to look at indigenous science and um, what we were trying to do and it wasn't just me there were actually three or four of us Udi Butler who some of you may know who was here and a couple of other people and the idea was to gather examples of, of indigenous science that didn't necessarily need to be justified in terms of meeting the criteria of what we might call mainstream science so we wanted to, to look at all sorts of indigenous knowledge um, and uh, to, this is what I'm hoping to explain to you during the course of today, to demonstrate a gradually increasing understanding of that knowledge. So whereas people would, uh, not, I'm going to come to that bit in a minute, and then find and record projects that were making indigenous knowledge, IK, as part of the national education systems. That's what we were going to look at and Udi's idea was that we were going to publish our findings in multimedia accessible ways. Um, Udi has gone off and done his own thing. We didn't get the grant and I went and did my own thing as a retired person. So I was invited to Melbourne, which was great, where I met Marcia Langton. Has she been here? Yeah. I didn't meet her. She came here. I met her in, in Oxford, in Durham. She came to Brooks, But she introduced me to all sorts of um, Aboriginal scholars who, who were able to help me. And um, my, the, the um, invitations I had there included enough resources for me to go travelling all, all over Australia, up north in different parts. So that was the way I did the Australian part. And um, <clears throat> another invitation to go to Otago in the south of New Zealand, where um, Paul Tapsall, some of you may remember him, he did his doctorate here and his uh, wife at the time Marita, uh, were in, in the local um, Maori, uh, St. Maori and Pacific Island centre. Um, they were helpful and then I also met other people like Graham Smith who's the husband of Linda Smith who wrote Decolonising Methodologies. Ocean Mercy I think has been here. She's Anyway, these people were very helpful so I managed to get on with it. Okay, so let's think about some of the issues that are uh, you know what I'm thinking about so um, the uh, imposition some of you have probably read Bruno Latour on this who talks about that the other people went and colonised and pillaged and did all sorts of things but taking science was the worst possible thing because it meant that you um, and then along with modernity you uh, imposed a system of thought on people and made people feel they were inferior if they didn't have it um, and that was called Progress, which lots of people want, I mean, I'm just summarising it very quickly. Um, indigenous scholars like Linda Smith and Marie Baptiste in Canada uh, have written quite a lot, pointing out that their own traditional knowledge has been put in second place always to the science that's been introduced from the outside. Not quite always, because I think things are changing, but that was the way they've written. And F- um, David Peat, who is a physicist who lived in North America and wrote a book called Blackfoot Physics, um, has argued, and he was, he was in, in Oxford, that, um, that science, our science, the science of the West, if you like, or the mainstream science, needs to be put in its cultural context alongside all the other sciences. So we take it out. We think that because of the Enlightenment, we were able to get outside of the cultural background. And he points out that's not the case, and we need to take that into account. Um, and think of our science as just another cosmology. One of the, one of the Maori scholars I, work, I, was, I got to know a little bit in New Zealand described Western science as the juggernaut of Western science with which we're having to, to deal. But it is just a cosmology. Okay. So, the meanings of science that you can consider. Throw out any other ideas if you have them, and this is just some that I got out of the dictionary and put down. And all the stuff I was doing complies with these meanings. So, a body of knowledge, it's a basic one, a procedure for best practice, um, which can include a skill or a technique, Uh, intellectual um, and practical study of the the structure and behaviour of the physical and natural world based on observations, experiment, and measurement leading to the formulation of laws. And that comes out of the Oxford English Dictionary. And people all over the world do that in everyday life. So there's no reason why we shouldn't call what they do science. And then there's also a definition, which is archaic knowledge of any kind. And for those of you who know Chinese, you might know that the word for science in Chinese is also used to mean modern. So back to Bruno Latour. That's just an example of somebody uh, you'll, you'll meet him again in a minute, actually. He, they're, they're making a canoe. Okay, so <clears throat> I'll give you some examples. Now, I worked in Australia and New Zealand doing this, and I've got some uh, examples from the Pacific. But I really enjoy hearing from anyone here who's worked in other areas and sharing other things. So please do interrupt, shout out if you want to make a contribution. I'm not talking about Japan. <laughs> could do, but not going to. So, in Australia, I'm going to talk about three things. The first one is fire. Um, and I'm going to show you the Kakadu National Park brochure, which explains all about it. Um, the second one is... Um, if any of you heard Marcia Langton when she was here, she talked about fire and, and different ways of burning in Australia. At least she did at brooks um, I'm going to talk a bit about water. And um, when I was doing this research, which was 2011, um, Melbourne Water was supposed to have commissioned the Wurundjeri people, who are the people of that area, to do a project on the cultural values of Mary Creek. And I'm afraid I haven't followed it up, but, but they did tell me about what they were doing. Um, and The third thing, and this has been taking place, is that in the Northern Territories a Miriwong seasonal calendar was to be used for adaptive water management. The thing I found in Australia, I'd, I'd, been, I'd been in Australia twice. so. <coughs> 2011 and um, 1994, and in 1994 I was in the same university, Melbourne, but in Japanese studies, nobody wanted to talk about anything to do with Aboriginal people. They were all off doing studies elsewhere, and um, even when a film came called Blackfellas or something of that sort, it only stayed for a week, and then it, it was made by Aboriginal people, and nobody wanted, it was weird, I was trying to find out things and I couldn't. 2011, everything had changed. The river had loads of scientists, what happened here. All Everyone uh, paid respect to the people of the land where they were, and things had changed um, considerably. So let me give you a little bit of an example. <coughs> so up in Kakadu National Park, um, they do burning regularly, and they do it all over northern Australia in a mosaic fashion, which means that they burn uh, every three years, everything gets burned. So... Um, they, they, they let things burn away, and if you do it every three years, things don't get so big that they get out of control. So it explains it here, that the animals have burned for tens of thousands of years, and the ancestors gave them the obligation. And When you burn land, it regenerates the plants, it herds the animals, and I wrote that in, in the book I wrote about all this, and, and the copy editor wrote, and she changed it. She put <laughs> moves the animals, yeah. So I changed it back. Actually they were doing it on purpose to herd the animals. Um, and uh, and it keeps keeps down the chance of having fires out of control. So those are all the things and, and there's a little quote there, the uh, I never damage, I look after it. So 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 you can see that. <clears throat> um, when I was doing when I Before I did this, actually, I I heard a... If you remember, well, there are quite often big fires in Australia, but in 2009 there was a huge one north of Melbourne. And at 10 to 7 on BBC Radio 4, I happened to be listening, and they recorded that there was a man who lived up in that region who'd who'd done Aboriginal burning, they described it, around his house. And it was illegal to do this. However, when they had a big bushfire, his house remained. And I don't know if that's his house. I found this on the internet. But it looks, it's the area where the fire was. And it looks pretty much like a house that the fire has gone around. Because if you keep the, the, all the bush low, the fire just goes around. And a, a, a great book came out when I was writing uh, my book, um, which was a history of, of Australia by, of the people who arrived first. And it's called The Biggest Estate on Earth. Because lots of people described what they found as like an English country estate. In other words, there wasn't bush everywhere; there was low grass. Because everyone did burning, apparently they they coordinated all the different peoples of Australia to burn their land on a regular basis. So that's that's a problem. <coughs> um, moreover, uh, recently it's become more and more recognised the value of doing this regular burning, and um, at James Cook University, they gave these two men uh, honorary doctorates for their knowledge of fire, and um, uh, they were employed to, to explain, and, to, and they teach young people, and the young people film them, and so on. So, it's getting, so that's one of the things that's getting passed down. Um, on the subject of water, I went, when I was in Melbourne on a tour, there's a place there called the Kuri, um Trust, and it's a culture centre and they offer educational tours. And, sorry, it's a bit dark, but anyway, this man, Dean Stewart, he was called, gathered a group of people, I signed up for a tour, um, and he took us to a spot where there's a bridge across the river, the Yarra River, and he showed the picture of how it was before um, the, uh, ma- a man named John Batman at, drove his boat up this river and arrived at this spot. And he showed us what it was like before, and... Um, John Batman arriving in a sort of sketch form. And then um, he showed us, he said that actually I'll go back for a second. Oh, no, sorry, I've gone forward. He said that uh, the point, that point on the river was where the sea came in and there was a weir because beyond that point it was fresh water. And John Batman arrived and he said, Oh, this would be a nice place to have a city. On one side of the river there was wetlands where people made a living, on the other side there was a floodplain. And I don't know if any of you have spent any time in Melbourne, but it regularly floods, and it is not a good place. And he also blew up the weir. So he completely destroyed the separation of seawater and fresh water. And those stones um, are still there. So you could still cross the river at that point, um, left over from the weir. You can't... They're not... Actually, it probably would be quite hard to cross. But, of course, Don Batman and the people who came after us built a bridge, which you can see there... There's the bridge. And this guy, um, who was of Aboriginal um, parentage at some point, he said uh, he was very generous about it all. He said, actually, we're just doing the same as we always did. We're working on the wetlands side and making a living. So we've got these great skyscrapers where we all work. And then on the other side, there's the Melbourne Cricket Club, and we have fun there, and we, we play, which is what our forebears did." And he took us to the... Ep- ah, what building was it? Anyway, a building where they built um, they built this huge building, but they made a garden of Aboriginal fl- plants. And uh, he said, oh, no, you could see Aboriginal, you could see birds uh, that inside amongst the plants that you can't see anywhere else in the city because they, they haven't got many of the plants. He said, so it's all right, the birds can go in there. But actually, I went over there one day, climbed over the fence, and I got booted out. So, <laughs> so that's good, he said, because I'm now separate from the fauna. I used to be classified with the flora and fauna. And when people arrive, the uh, immigration building is just there. And for many, many years, people arriving were given the status of human beings, but the Aboriginal people weren't, he said. So there you go. <clears throat> that was the, the tour about the water. Now, what's happening now in Melbourne, and around Melbourne, is that where damage has been done to the rivers, there are things being done to... Um, to revive some of the old system, they can't obviously put the weir back in the place where the bridge was, but they're replanting things that uh, can you see here it's got various things that are being done um, that they're rebuilding places where the river has been damaged and they're trying to re-establish a, um, a more uh, ecologically beneficial river bank um, so there's the calendar, or one of the calendars There are amazing calendars that you can look at and see and um, tell you not only the times of the year, but what happens at particular times and so on, um, and different seasons. One of the things that struck me when I was in Australia was that actually the seasons, four seasons, have been introduced from Europe, so the only way you can tell there are four seasons is because there are trees that lose, you know, deciduous trees and things that were brought from Europe, but if you look at the native trees, then they do different things, and here are some of the seasons, the hot dry. That's up in the Northwest Territories, my view. There's pre-monsoon and so on. And it tells you all the things that happen. And one of the great things i discovered when I was there, and this was quite by chance in Adelaide, there's an art art exhibition of prints by a man called Billy Missy. And all his prints uh, were science. They carried in them various aspects of how the calendar works, what happens at particular times of year, what you need to do. I mean, you can see the, the fish and the turtles and things, but there's, there's loads of information in all of his pictures. I've paid to, to, to reproduce this, so I didn't reproduce more than one, but they were amazing. So that was one of the ways in which scientific knowledge was, was kept in, in, in paintings, and other ways, uh, stories, of course, as you had at the beginning. <coughs> um, ceremonies is another part. You know? Uh, So that's some Australian examples. In uh, some Maori cases, I met in Otago a man called Michael Stevens who'd written a whole thesis about um, the way that mutton birds were caught and um, how... uh, What they do is they catch these mutton birds at a particular time of the year. They're very careful to catch ones that don't (coughs) interfere with the breeding process and, and so on. And they pack them in... That's kelp, kind of seaweed... Um, and it keeps them all winter, so it preserves them. And he, uh, he's, he, in his thesis he wrote about how this knowledge had been passed on and how although people know other ways to keep um, the kelp, to keep the mutton birds, not in the kelp, they still like to do it because it preserves the taste. He actually brought me a mutton bird to taste when I was there. And it, I can see why it was... They're called Titi in um, Maori. I can see why they're called mutton birds because it... Because it had that kind of horrible taste that I didn't like it much. That mutton—it's you know, not lamb, is it? It's not—you know—it's mutton. It's, it's kind of. So I don't know who called them mutton birds, but I wasn't too impressed when you keep something. So there he is, passing on the knowledge. He goes out and does the mutton birding um, still every year with his family, and this is his little boy learning. He's only about three, I think, to to uh, to pluck the bird. And then it gets put in, and he's blowing up the kelp. And he had, it was quite interesting, because in his thesis he told told about his family and who had passed on the knowledge and how. And he had a Scottish granny, and apparently the Scottish granny was particularly um, keen that the knowledge should be conserved and passed on. (coughs) Now, one of the most um, influential Maori scholars is a man called Mason Jury, Sir Mason Jury, actually. And he um, uh, was was qualified med- medical practitioner and a psychiatrist. Um, he became, um, I think, deputy vice... or pro- co vice chancellor of Massey University. He's retired now, but he's still around. He wrote these two... Um, he devised these two diagrams of how you re- maintain health, retain health, maintain your health. Um, and they now can be found on, on the New Zealand um, Ministry of Health website. So they've been accepted and people talk about them and use them. So uh, an individual needs to have not only physical well-being, but spirit, mental and emotional well-being, social well-being, and spiritual well-being. And that house is the model for having everything you need to be healthy. Um, and this one, which is based on the Southern Cross, the stars and the sky above the museum, <coughs> um, is for a, for a person to be really healthy and to, to have that community, that social well-being, they need to have a healthy community. And a healthy community needs uh, community leadership, and you've got very autonomy from the government telling you what to do, healthy lifestyles, participation in society, cultural identity, and so on. (coughs) So actually it's been really influential, and and Mario across um, New Zealand um, uh, have built on his ideas and tried to live within his ideas, and there's a whole load of... Um, in, if you're studying medicine, and a lot of people were where I was in the University of Otago because I happened to be in a college surrounded by people doing medical sciences, um, they do all learn these things and, and um, go and spend time in Marae, the Marae meeting places, and so on. So it's, he's been pretty influential. <coughs> um, I also met an engineer called Kepa Morgan, who's at Auckland University, and uh, he. Um, Tanifa is a, a, a Maori word which means, literally translated, is um, a frightening beast, some kind of a monster, and people talk about Tanifa, and this is this is where the stories are carrying the knowledge. Tanifa appears at a spot where it's going to be frightening to go, and definitely not a good idea to build, and he, and the man who you'll meet in a minute, um, wrote <coughs> articles about, about this, because they both said, problem is that because the knowledge is passed on in stories and they're about monsters, people don't take them seriously. But he was able to give two really good examples of a road that did take no- notice of where the Tannifar was, and went, spelt, se- spent several uh, thousands of dollars going around the zone where the Tannifar was, has survived, while the zone where the Tannifar was has actually sunk. So if they'd built the road across there, it would have um, subsided. Um, a prison, on the other hand, was built in a spot where there was supposed to be a telephone, and it is subsiding and needs yeah. to be rebuilt. So they, th- that's just a couple of examples. And actually, Māori, this thing down at the bottom, is an idea of um, meeting criteria that is known. That Matawaranga is the Māori word for knowledge, which it could be called science. <clears throat> and he's devised a thing called a Māoriometer which um, looks at projects, engineering projects, to see if they meet these criteria. So it's quite serious stuff. was a bit sad, actually, because I said to him, are you able to teach this? You know, do the other people in the department accept what you're doing? And he said, you know, I did, and, and we were all doing really well, but we've just got a new boss, um, and he's not so keen. And guess where he comes from? I said, um, England. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he was from. So he was doing his best to hang in there. (coughs) Um, He'd also, and he's quite well known for this, designed a house using local sustainable materials that people could build really cheaply. And Maori people across uh, Aotearoa, as they call it, using these local materials, it's a bit um, like uh, mud and mussel and daub type of buildings, but they're fine. And and he's he's introduced that. I just put in a slide about other indigenous architecture because i would already shown you the, the, the building on, on the reserve. So, for example, I don't know if you know this, but in the Isle of Lewis, um, <coughs> those little black houses that people lived in were a lot healthier and better adapted to the environment than the white houses that um, governments came along and told people to replace them with. And they said, oh, they're smoky. Well, the smoke killed germs. And the smoke actually went into the thatch and was taken the thatch was taken off once a year, a year and used for fertiliser. So, uh, and the cows used to live in there as well. Down the cattle lived um, uh, down hill a little bit from the people, and the warmth would come up from the cattle, and all the slops would be sent down to the cattle. And apparently, the urine, the cattle's urine, protected people from TB. So there were all kinds of things that that were beneficial about those houses. Um, although hardly anyone lives in them now. You can go and have a holiday in one, I think, if you want to try it out. Um, this is in um, Nunavut, which is the um, uh, Inuit uh, province in Canada. And it's, it's, a, it's a cathedral, and it's just that it's built in the shape of a like an igloo, and it's got the entrance, and people like to sit in the round. This is actually the second cathedral, because the previous one burnt down, but it was still round. And I went in the previous one, and it had... Some seats around the side, but others in rows. And apparently, in the new one, they all now sit round because people like to sit round. They it's good to sit round. Isn't it? <laughs> good idea. And, and uh, the Legislative Assembly building there is also in the round and it has no um, uh, government in power and opposition. The only people who have special seats are the elders, and they advise. Otherwise, you have to come to an agreement. There's another one, it's in Winnipeg. <coughs> but again, has characteristics that people find um, uh, that they're comfortable with. And then this is another Maori scholar I met called Daniel Hikuroa, who's the head of um, the Maori research unit at Auckland University. Uh, He's the one who published with Kepa, and um, he... uh, Earth science is his thing, and he gets called out whenever they have disasters to explain the problem, what's happened, what's gone wrong. So people do really value the, the, that Maori knowledge that he's got. Um, he was, it was quite interesting because I sent him back what I'd written about what, his, um, what he does and he said, I think I I think I used the word stories when you were there and I said that people don't value stories. He said, so maybe we should put narrative but I'd already written quite a bit about the problem of using the word stories. So he, he said, well, I'll leave it then. But, but he, he's trying to think how he can talk about their knowledge without making it sound trivial. Mm. <clears throat> um, then a couple of others. The, the woman on the left, Rua, uh, is writing a thesis w- in which she's c- comparing um, Maori indigenous knowledge and um, quantum physics. And Osia Mercia, who uh, I showed you before, is actually teaching indigenous knowledge, or she was, in Wellington University, um, and using, showing how their, their understanding of materials and matter could actually be quite easily be compared with the quantum physics. I mean, I can go into more detail on that if you want me to, but that's just an example. Um, and then um, I, had, I was really lucky because when I was there in New Zealand, it was cold, it was actually winter, and I was having three winters, one here and then New Zealand. And then. And so I went to um, the Cook Islands, and I went to Rarotonga, which is a very nice, warm place in the winter, and I walked into the University of the South Pacific here. That's its... Um, it's not very big, it's just a little place. And I met this man called Rod Dixon, and he, um, he introduced me to. Uh, well, actually, at that time, he didn't do much except we had lunch and I told him what I was doing. But a bit later, he wrote to me and said, I've got all these people on outlying islands who want to do research projects, but they can't come to the main island to be trained in writing their projects. Would you come and go to the islands and help them write up their proposals for research? So, of course, I said yes. And it was absolutely wonderful because they were all local um, Cook Island people whose first language is Maori and they had all got, almost all, got ideas about using their own indigenous knowledge in some way or another and finding out more about it. So, um, oh, and I forgot to mention Paul Tapsell, who was head of the Maori and Pacific Island Institute, said you should look at navigation. It's really interesting because the local Pacific Islanders are finding out about the past. And one of the things that they think was that when people were boating about the huge area of the Pacific, there was a kind of central island called Rayatea. A man came to the Pitt Rivers actually called Tahi. Did anyone meet him when he came? Because he was on... Did you not meet him? He was on the radio. um, uh, There's a BBC programme where he's describing things. He he, he also went to Edinburgh and and did various things. I met him in in Rarotonga and uh, I'll show you him in a minute because he's a And he talked about the the navigation. There he is. He's he's the one on the right. And he's showing, he's making a canoe by binding everything up with rope, which is what they used to do. And and that was the picture I showed at the beginning of the, uh, by the science idea. And they're doing this at the museum. And there's one, there's a canoe like this hanging up in Edinburgh in the the department um, about, I think it's called the sea now. That uh, Chantal Nulls. Um So there he is doing the binding part, and there's a stick map, which is the way people recorded where currents and things were. But you weren't to take it when you went to sea because you had to feel the ocean. And so, on. Um, so some of the examples I looked at, and I won't go into these in any detail. Navigational skills is one thing, including astronomy, but also including uh, a lot about feeling the sea and what's going on in the currents and where islands are and uh, all sorts of detail. Um, <coughs> other ideas about astronomy. <coughs> there was one woman who was... Oh, yeah, actually, one of the women who's help, whose research project I helped her to put together, she was a maths teacher in the local school, and she wanted to use, get the children to go out and find out about traditional navigational skills in, as they were learning maths. Um, and uh, another one was teaching chemistry and she wanted to get them to learn about tapper making from bark the, the, the cloth, bark cloth using their knowledge of chemistry or you know, bringing them together um, another woman was doing a project on moon cycles and I said to her how many moon cycles do you recognise and she said, oh, well, 32 because you, you have to you know, plant at a particular time to fish at a particular time and she was doing that project I have to say that the food there was, was fantastic, so I think it was lucky. <laughs> um, other fishing skills. There was a, uh, yeah, there was a guy looking that, Medicinal plants and so on. And, and, and again, stories for transmitting knowledge. Okay, so those are all the examples of things I did. And um, what I want to do then, um, and this is actually um, partly, uh, well, mostly based on what, the indigenous people have written about their own science. The people I work with have said about it. <clears throat> so there's a man called Greg Cajete, who also came here to a conference at Brooks, um, has written a book called Native Science. And by the way, I've got a bibliography, if anyone wants to follow up any of the things that I mentioned. Um, in which he argues that and he was a scientist, OK? I mean, in the sense that he studied science at the University of America. Um, he taught it for a while. And then he now teach, teaches native studies. Actually, now he's rather famous, and he goes around and he lectures all over the place. Um, if you're interested, I just listened to a YouTube clip where I left home. It's been something he did last year. <coughs> so his argument is that mainstream science is fine. What you, you know, we all know is science is fine. But it leaves out three things. There are three ways in which it's um, uh, not uh, adequate, as he sees it. So one is that scientists think that if they carry on learning and doing enough science, they'll be able to control everything. Number two is that many underestimate their own place in the world. I don't think anthropologists do this because we know the value of ourselves being somewhere, but this is what he's argued in his book. And the third is that uh, some of them, maybe most of them, ignore or disbelieve all the spiritual elements and look only for evidence that they can explain. So then in his book, he carries on in his books. Although it's about Native American science, it's actually really uh, popular with indigenous people all over the world because they see the relationship with the environment and all sorts of other things. Um, there are various things that have been published, and Leroy Little Bear has a wonderful YouTube clip as well explaining that if you could talk about quantum physics, if we could all talk about quantum physics in, in a Blackfoot language, I don't know which one, he just calls it Blackfoot, um, you would have no trouble understanding it because the problem with English is it 's got too many nouns and everything has to be brought to um, a kind of static situation whereas in blackfoot i don 't know if you know anything about this Laura, everything 's moving and everything 's dynamic, and so there 's no problem in explaining um, quantum physics and he gave I heard him giving a lecture in london actually to a, it, at what 's now queen Mary university and there was a there was a, um uh, a room of about three hundred and fifty people all uh, you know listening to, to him and it was really impressive David <coughs> Pete again who I've mentioned already who um, has various uh, further ideas that he brings into looking at um, indigenous science knowledge of the process um, he, he was uh, an advocate of, of bone and then a woman called Trina Ward has written about Chinese medicine as having various manifestations or various enactments she calls them that um, you can actually You can have things that appear in English to be impossible together or inconsistent, can work in Chinese. So you can have things that um, you can have two apparently incompatible things going on at the same time. And some of them, some of the practitioners that she worked with, she's actually a practitioner herself, um, have have, might have five different things that apparently are incompatible, but they don't mind (laughs) work with them um so so how how do we talk about these epistemological differences? <clears throat> well, one thing that the people that I work with made, um a point of saying is that we need to accord equal weight to all kinds of science and then I mentioned this earlier that uh, David Pete said you need to add guide stories or you need to add cultural background to all to mainstream science um, and the history and I did astronomy and in, in in my Astronomy courses, we did learn history. We did learn about the history of astronomy. We learnt about astronomers and how it how it developed and various things like that. In physics, we really didn't learn much because we we learnt what was um, what worked at the time and what had been what had been tested and tried and seemed to work at the time. I'm sure things have moved on since then a lot since I I studied it, but um, we didn't get put into the context of history of science. And I would like probably. Um, and then, how do you get around the fact that people are thinking quite differently? Well, in Australia, they have decided that it's the, the concept of seeing with both eyes. So, um, and I've given the example of using Indigenous scientific knowledge to teach EG mathematics, because there are various places in which mathematics is being taught <coughs> using Indigenous concepts to start. And one of the most famous ones is um, there's a man called Michael Christie in Charles Darwin University who is fluent Yolnu speaker. And um, they have, actually, I think I might put let's see it next time. I think I've, maybe I haven't left it there. There's a, a Yolnu concept of, um, uh, uh, I think it does come actually, sorry, just leave it and see if it comes. Um, but they, so the children go to school and they know <coughs> about their relatives, and, and, where, and they know where they are, and they know about the environment. So they know about space and place when they get to school, and they know about relationships and who people are. And Michael Christie's been working with the all new elders to teach, start with that knowledge, and then teach maths out from there. So rather than coming along and saying, okay, you've got to get a number, you've got to know addition, subtraction, and so on, they work through that knowledge, and apparently it's really successful. And, you can also see him doing that kind of thing on YouTube clips. <clears throat> I mentioned the multiple realities already. Um, and um, then the seeking of the spiritual, the soul in all science, is another thing that, that indigenous people are quite keen on. That, this man was quite interesting. I just popped out this rubbish picture, I'm afraid, but it was at a conference on Aboriginal education. And this man came from... Actually, I've forgotten where he came from, but somewhere in Africa. And he was teaching Ojibwe people in Canada, maths. And he said it was absolutely awful, because he was trying to teach the maths that he'd learnt, which had come from Europe, way of thinking, or maybe you know, pre-Europe, ways of thinking, the sort of maths we all learn. And it was absolutely hopeless. So he then learned, gradually as he was living there, learned Ojibwe, and, and he taught, he gave a talk that was really fascinating about how he'd begun to use, he put up a, an equation, first of all, and we all kind of went, oh yeah. And then he began to show how the Ojibwe language uh, that he'd learned was able to um, lead, lead into learning math in a much more successful way. So maths actually, I've got a whole chapter on maths, I could go on, but I won't. <coughs> um, OK, so then I said at the beginning is the world learning, and this is just to see some examples. Um, sorry, I put two up, doesn't matter. The medicine wheel as a model is used in, you know, in North America sometimes, and one particular example is South Saskatchewan, where uh, there is a, quite a large population of Aboriginal people. And the uh, education committee's got together with the elders, and they actually have introduced this model in schools. And apparently, um, one of the things is that the medicine wheel is flat, and the different sorts of science that are going in are given equal space. So neither, none of them is superior to any others, and children learn different sorts of medicine. To give you a practical example, in up in Iqaluit I saw children going out on a summer project to catch a caribou. So they were going to learn how to catch caribou as their ancestors had done, what to do with the caribou, how to cut it up, how to use the skin. But they were also at the same time learning the biology, the in- zoology, the inside of the caribou. So it was a kind of combination all in one project of mixing different um, ideas. <coughs> Both ways idea, edu- both ways education is found in various Australian um, establishments. So Yolnu is one... Oh, that's the word, yeah, it's ga- Gamma. I don't know how you pronounce that, but it's it's a really nice image because it's a lagoon of fresh water, and every uh, time the tide comes in, the sea water rushes in and it mixes. So it doesn't say this um, exactly and precisely, but the lovely fresh lagoon water is undoubtedly <laughs> the Yolnu cultural. Heritage, and then that water coming, rushing in, and mixing round is the outside science, mixing up with it, I suppose. But anyway, that's that's the concept. And <coughs> um, one example of a place in Australia where they've, they've got quite a lot of um, Aboriginal or Indigenous knowledge being passed on is Flinders the University near Adelaide, and it's got a building and a picture of the building there. That's the entrance to the building, and it's... Um, the uh, First Nations Centre for Higher Education and Research. And in 2014, it had about 300 students and 50 to 60 postgraduates, and that's the uh, professor, the guy who runs the place. And I met quite a few people there and talked to them about various ways in which they, they do their research and um, are able to value their own indigenous knowledge. And then the schools, the Melbourne Wesley College and another school. That I found in in Melbourne um, have some schools have exchanges with Aboriginal schools up in the north of Australia, and they send they send people can apply to go to and fro. And there's a wonderful film made by the other school. I'm sorry, I can't remember. If, I could look up its name, but it's not good. The point of it was that there was a boy <clears throat> up in the north. Um, not that school, this other school, who was absolutely, he wouldn't go to school, he hated school, he couldn't do any good at school. When these children came from Melbourne of his age, he took them out into the wetlands and showed them how to get food and how to find things and what beasts lived there. And there's a wonderful film of this boy being transformed into a teacher, having absolutely given up on school altogether. So it's quite nice. And the, and the Yerimali School, Wesley's studio school. The children do Skype, Skype to each other and they do exchanges and things, so they're learning about each other's schooling background. And some of them come to Melbourne and go to the college and so on. And then finally, CSAFE, which is the Centre for Sustainability, It was the Agriculture, Food, Energy and Environment in Otago, um, brings students to do PhDs from various other countries where they're able to... The aim of the place is to look at all those things um, in the context of a uh, combination of your own indigenous knowledge and, and uh, Western science. And Henrik Moller is a, an amazing man who I, I got in touch with him and I said, I hear you're doing this thing, at By reply, I got about 50 uh, attachments with examples of what they're doing and publications. So if anyone wants to know what's going on there, Henrik Moller is the guy. <laughs> Keep you quiet for a good half a turn. There, there you go. That's my part of it. <laughs>